Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is Michel Ferdinand. It's one of our house champagnes. Uh, on this particular bottle, we are going to be on a Brut Nature Reserve, so Brut Nature meaning you have 0% of sugar inside. I'm Remy, Remy Fury. I'm the general manager at Champagne and Fromage Covent Garden. We sell cheese. We sell cheese from goat's cheese to cow's cheese. We are exclusively French, so all of our cheeses are French, and we try to make an experience to the customer to pair our cheeses with Champagne, so every Champagne will have a different cheese that it goes better with or not. For two years, price rises around the world have been rampant. And that is being felt across the economy. So has Remy had to raise his prices? Yes, slightly, about 5% in the last three months. Two reasons, they've got a slight increase from our producers. So we source directly all of our products directly in France. In France, agriculture is not thriving at the moment. So they are bound to bring up their prices a little bit. And on the other hand, what's really developing that price increase in hospitality in general, not only us, is the fact that our bills are going out the roof. We have to sustain a business at the end of the day. Central banks have acted aggressively to try and slow down rising prices across the economy. Let's get more now on our top story. The US Federal Reserve raising interest rates from 5 to 5.25%. This is the 10th consecutive rate hike. The Bank of England has raised interest rates for the 13th time in a row to 5%. That's up from 4.5%. Interest rate increases are supposed to take the fizz out of the economy, curbing demand to bring rising prices or inflation back under control. But those rate increases have not proven entirely successful yet. Demographics and the climate transition might mean inflation keeps jumping. More rate rises could come with nasty consequences for unemployment and for growth. So what if central banks decide to let inflation run hot? You're listening to Money Talks from The Economist our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy, and the world of business. In Washington, D.C., I'm Alice Fulwood. In London, I'm Tom Lee Devlin. In Singapore, I'm Mike Bird. And in today's show, how the world would change if sticky inflation sticks around. First, we'll hear why that may be more likely this time. So the argument is that the inflation we've seen over the last couple of years wasn't just a single lurch, but instead the start of a much longer period of rising prices. Then, we'll hear what impact that would have on financial markets, including the stock market. It's terrifically challenging. Most of us have not lived through inflation regimes. And finally, how long-term higher inflation would hit the bond market. That would be very interesting, very disruptive. Mike, Tom, hello. Hello. Hey, Alice. So, Mike, you're only just barely in Singapore, right? 
Yeah, as of the time of this recording, I think I landed in Singapore about 34 minutes ago, <laughs> which uh, shows the benefits of living relatively close to the airport. Not that anyone in Singapore lives that far from the airport. Also shows your commitment and dedication to uh, making it to our Money Talks recording. So thank you for your uh, mad dash from the gate. Yes, thank you for selling that for me. <laughs> So we are talking about inflation today, which is one of those topics we have to keep coming back to. When prices started rising in 2021, there was a lot of discussion about whether inflation was going to be transitory or persistent, and it has persisted. So now we are increasingly hearing people debate whether higher inflation is structural in some way, something we're going to have to keep dealing with, or whether it's a cyclical post-pandemic phenomenon. What do you both reckon? So I think I've admitted on a previous episode, I've done a sort of my mere culpa on being blindsided by the rise in inflation. I think there's something to sort of coming of age and learning about finance and economics between 2008 and now that made the idea of the resumptions of inflation really hard to believe. No shortage of people said it a number of times between 2008 and 2020. It was very difficult to believe then it didn't happen. I suppose I'm still mostly on team transitory, if I'm still allowed to say that. But I'm understandably quite a lot less convinced of that than I used to be. I mean, I do think it's amazing how quickly the consensus on this shifted. You know, when inflation first started a couple of years ago, many prominent economists very confidently asserted that all this would pass quickly and that inflation expectations were well anchored. And then gradually that consensus eroded. And now I think we're at a position where most people seem to be of the view that inflation is probably not going to come down to certainly its pre-pandemic levels anytime soon. And I think the big question mark is where exactly it's going to land. Yeah, I agree. And the natural question that follows from that is, sort of, so have central banks already done enough to get it back down? Or is it not quite working, essentially? You know, they've been raising interest rates aggressively for more than a year now. You know, in most developed countries, interest rates are at their highest levels in more than a decade, in some places, several decades. And the interesting story to think about is, OK, what if they've not done enough yet? What if inflation stays high or it keeps coming back? And you are starting more and more people questioning whether central banks will be willing to keep going, to keep raising interest rates if they haven't already done enough and inflict more pain on their economies to hit that 2% target for inflation. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see if central banks have the metal to create the unemployment and potentially the recessions needed to push inflation down back to the levels that their target sort of set at. Well, someone who has been thinking about this a lot recently is the economist Josh Roberts, and I want to bring him in here. So, Josh, hello. Hi, Alice. So, first up, we just put sticky inflation on the cover of The Economist. Can you walk us through what the arguments are that we're making that inflation might persist at uncomfortably high levels? So I suppose the most obvious one is that they already have been for quite a while. So American inflation has now been above its 2% target for nearly two and a half years. And prices aren't rising as quickly as they were last year. So then inflation hit 9.1% in the US, 10.6% in the euro area, and 10.4% around the world. But they're also not cooling very much. British inflation has only come down to 8.7%, and it's been stuck there for the last couple of months. American core prices, those are the ones that exclude volatile food and energy, are 5.3% higher than a year ago, and that's barely fallen for six months. Now, that's what we've seen so far, but there's also a series of big global trends which we might expect to keep pushing prices up in the future. 
populations are aging, especially in a lot of the rich world. That'll shrink workforces and it could lead to labour shortages. After the pandemic and the war in Ukraine, firms are replacing efficient global supply chains with more secure, but also more expensive local ones. And governments are spending more on all sorts of things, defence, supporting those ageing populations, and the investment needed to cut greenhouse gas emissions. So the argument is that the inflation we've seen over the last couple of years wasn't just a single lurch, but instead the start of a much longer period of rising prices. Right. But if you look at what the markets are expecting, most investors actually seem to be predicting that inflation will return to its 2% target rate in most developed economies by the end of next year or, or maybe early 2025. So do you think they've just got it wrong? So it's not just me on my own worrying about this. It's the house view at BlackRock, which is the world's biggest asset manager. They think inflation will stay persistently higher than central banks' 2% targets. I recently sat down with Jean Boivon, who runs their research institute, and he thinks that it will settle at around 3 to 4%. Richard Clarida, who was the vice chair of the Federal Reserve from 2018 to 2022, he's written that the Fed is more likely to reach two point something than 2.0. And when I asked him what something means, he said it could be 2.8% or 2.9% when they start to consider rate cuts. And just this week, the Bank of International Settlements, which is often called the central bank for central banks, warned that once inflation psychology sets in, it's hard to dislodge. And though inflation's fallen in the last year in most countries, it's the last mile of bringing it down that's the hardest. What they're all talking about is that once high inflation takes hold, as it did last year, it's a long, difficult slog to get it back down to central banks' targets. It's not at all certain that they'll get there at all. So it's worth considering what long-term inflation of 3 to 4% would mean. And even those couple of percentage points would make a really big difference. Okay, so what will that mean? What will happen to financial markets if you and all of these other people that are worried about inflation remaining elevated are correct? The big headline is that inflation redistributes wealth. So prices rise in general, but not all of them are affected equally. In the real economy, that might mean your wages don't rise as much as your grocery bill does, so you feel less well off. In the financial world, what we're talking about is a relative repricing of different asset classes. Okay, and we are going to go much deeper on all of the implications for equities and bonds with both of our guests in a couple of minutes. But can you give us just like the 30,000 foot view of what it will mean for those major asset classes? So it's not necessarily too bad for equities. They are ultimately claims on companies' earnings. And if prices are rising across the board, those earnings ought to be rising too. Although that doesn't mean that there won't be individual losers. For bonds, it's more complicated. Short-term ones might fare reasonably well, because if central bankers decide to tolerate above-target inflation, they won't have to raise rates as much in the short term. Now, raising rates makes bond prices go down. So if they're not raised as much, that's good for short-term bonds. Long-term bonds, though, would fare worse, because sustained inflation would eat away at the real value of their principal much more. And also the added uncertainty about how central bankers might cope with higher inflation in the long run would drive their prices down. One exception to that might be inflation-linked bonds. These are sometimes called TIPS in the US or linkers in other places. So these are bonds where the principal repayment is actually itself linked to inflation, which means it's protected from inflation. In theory, those don't have the value of their repayment eaten away by inflation. In practice, though, again, they can be hurt by periods of high inflation. So last year, for example, because of the uncertainty in what central banks would do next to cope with the inflationary burst, even inflation-linked treasuries suffered quite big losses. 
All right. Well, thank you so much, Josh. That was very clarifying. And we'll move on to our guests now, but I'll ask you to come back at the end of the show. So please do stick around. Yes, happy to. So to understand how higher inflation would affect the first of those asset classes, equities, I spoke to Ed Cole, who's Managing Director at Man Group, an asset manager. Hello, Ed. Welcome to the show. Hi, Alice. Thank you for having me. If we move into a world where inflation is much harder to keep under control than it has been in the past, what does that mean for the equity market? So it's terrifically challenging, to be honest. Most of us have not lived through inflation regimes. You have to go back really to 50 years for the last inflationary regime. And it's tempting to look at the 70s and assume that's the right template, but things will always be different. My colleagues actually wrote probably what so far has been the definitive paper on this. And they looked at nearly 100 years of inflation data in the US and financial market data to see what asset classes, what types of investment strategies do well in inflationary periods. Commodities do very well. Unsurprisingly, they're often the source of inflation. So it's not surprising that they should do well. The other thing that does consistently well is traditional trend following, which is a systematic quantitative investment strategy, which is in essence a multi-asset. So you point the models at all sorts of different asset classes and they identify what is trending and they follow those trends. I guess the reason that works so well is because inflationary regimes are disruptive. They change trends and they then trend themselves. Inflation is not, as we know now today, sitting here two years into this, it doesn't end with a bang. It tends to trend and it gets sticky. And how do you respond to that? The really interesting thing for equity markets is that you have these two countervailing forces that are going on. And we've seen those play out just in the last two years. The first is that assuming that interest rates go up with inflation, which is normally what happens, and I think is our experience in most developed economies, higher interest rates, all things equal, are quite bad for the way that equities are valued. And the reason for that is that equity valuation reflects the value today of all of the earnings and cash flows in the future. And when you raise the interest rate, it's called a discount rate, you penalize those future cash flows more aggressively. And so if interest rates are going up, then the value today of what you expect to get in the future goes down. That's exactly what we saw in 2022. The NASDAQ, which has been the kind of most in vogue market, went from a price earnings multiple, so the price of the NASDAQ divided by the earnings of the NASDAQ, of 28, which is a lot, down to 19, which is still quite a lot. And that was the most negatively impacted major market in the world in terms of valuation. So all things equal, if we're in a higher interest rate and inflation regime, we should expect equities to have a lower valuation attached to it. Against that, you've got the fact that companies earn in nominal terms. What I mean by that is that they receive price, right? So we all know this. You go to the supermarket, prices are up. That's a reflection of inflation. So if prices are higher, then there are many companies in the world that will be able to, at least in their revenue line, will be able to benefit from that. And so you've got, on the one hand, the headwind factor of a problem with valuation. On the other hand, you've got some sectors and industries that could really benefit from higher inflation. The most obvious one, of course, is energy markets or energy companies. As the price of oil goes up, they do much better. And that push and pull is the complex thing. Okay, so that's the sort of broad impact on equity markets. Is there any difference in how this might affect different regions or different countries? I think there absolutely is. So 
if you bear in mind what I said about the impact of higher interest rates on the value of cash flows in the future, that has really profound regional implications. So the US equity market is really what we think of as the long duration equity market par excellence. And what I mean by that is that it's got the highest concentration of businesses that are kind of growthy businesses that have assets on their balance sheet that are close to perpetual. And I'm going to give you an example because this sounds a bit hard to get your head around. Think about the kind of big software businesses that we all know that might have invented software that sits on your home PC that was invented in the 1970s or 1980s. That's an intangible asset, right? It's not a machine. The earnings and the cash flows that come off that asset have been churned out for 40 or 50 years. The US is an incredibly innovative economy. It attracts entrepreneurs. In the last 20 years, that's been particularly entrepreneurs in the technology space and the software space. So the equity markets there have a very high concentration of these types of businesses, which have got these cash flows that stretch out far into the future based on intangible assets. Now, that's why this is the most expensive equity market in the world, because the last 15 years where interest rates have been going down all the time has been a phenomenal environment for the valuation of those companies. But of course, we are now in a world where interest rates are going up quickly. So what happens in that situation? You flip it on its head, if we're in a higher and more volatile interest rate regime, the valuation of those businesses starts to get threatened much more. The flip side of that is short duration assets. And I'll explain what I mean by that. So the long one is a software business. The short duration one is a company that makes things. So let's say a company that makes ball bearings, right? Ball bearing making machine is a really predictable thing. You buy it, you know it's going to last you 10 years. You know the cash flow that comes from that machine is finite. And that's a short duration asset and a short duration cash flow. And when you change the interest rate on that, it moves the value around way less than it does on the long one. So the short duration market in the world is Japan. It makes stuff. Corporate Japan makes ships and concrete and steel and tech hardware and all those sorts of things. Corporate America makes immaterial things. I don't mean they don't mean anything, but you know what I mean. They're intangible. <laughs> and what's happened in the last 15 years is that the concentration of capital in institutional portfolios and household portfolios has gone up inexorably. Venture capital, private equity, public equity, all of it's kind of found its way into the US because it's been just the best story in town. And I think those dynamics are changing. So if it's higher and more volatile, I think we're going to find that over time, people are trying to find ways to defend themselves against the risk that valuations come down, look for cheaper things in essence, and to try to find exposure to shorter duration cash flows, which are a bit less volatile and a bit less vulnerable. Thank you so much, Ed. That was really helpful. Thank you, Alice. It was a great pleasure. Tom, Mike, the thing that I found really interesting from what Ed was saying was how these big macro drivers that we're talking about, inflation and interest rates, are sort of essentially your investing theory of everything. You know, they get into every single trend or analysis of every asset class that you might think to do. So, for instance, if you take the scenario that we're talking about, that inflation remains high, that central banks don't necessarily raise interest rates 
even more aggressively to head it off. That gets into how you should think about sectors within certain countries' asset classes, so tech versus everything else. And then that gets into, you know, which countries are the ones you want to be exposed to. So that is making the case for Japan over the US here. And it's one of those things where your view on what is going to happen with inflation and rates is basically the only opinion you need to have because it essentially informs every other investing decision that you're going to make. There was a a point that Ed made that I thought was really interesting around the impact of interest rates on valuations. And it is interesting to me how the ratio of, of corporate valuations to GDP has just ballooned over the past few decades in the low rate environment that we had up until very recently. So in 1980, the the total market capitalization of America's listed firms was around 40% of GDP. And then it began to rise through the 1990s as interest rates came down. And now it's around 160% of GDP, which is just a massive increase and far exceeds the rise in corporate profits as a share of GDP that we've also seen over that period. I also think the question of which companies will win and lose from inflation is a fascinating one. And there's a lot that goes into it. So not all firms have the same ability to pass on higher costs in higher prices. If you're selling quite a commoditized product or something for which there are lots of substitutes, it's actually quite tough. And then the other factor is around cost structures. If you're in a very capital intensive business, whether that's physical or intellectual capital, then your ability to trim costs to improve margins is actually pretty limited. Yeah, I find Ed's view of this really interesting. And I think that it sounds all sort of very plausible and fits very much with what people are talking about at the moment. What I then find interesting is how sort of not priced for this markets are. You look at the valuation of growth stocks, if we talked about, you look at the absolute level of volatility in stock markets, and they're nowhere near being priced for any of this. It all seems intuitively quite possible. If this thesis is right, then there's a huge amount of asset wealth out there that is pretty wildly mispriced at the moment. And I wonder whether there's an element here, we've talked a little bit about people not really being around during the last inflationary cycle, not that many people who are either investment professionals or just market watchers paying attention to this. And there still seems to be, if this new world is coming, a more inflationary, semi-permanently higher interest rate environment, then it feels like huge amounts of the market really hasn't adjusted to that in any way. And there's a huge amount of that still to come. Well, speaking of surprises, one thing that certainly caught me off guard in the past week was the saga around the attempted and then quickly aborted coup in Russia. We, of course, have spent a lot of time thinking about that as a paper over the past week, and I'm very much looking forward to our coverage on that in the weekly edition. Listeners can read those pieces and more for absolutely nothing by going to economist.com forward slash podcast offer for a free 30-day digital subscription. That is if you're not a subscriber already. After the break, we'll hear how higher inflation for longer would affect the bond market. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
Before the break, we heard how stock markets would react if higher inflation stuck around. But now I want to turn to bond markets. So I spoke to Andrew Balls. He's Chief Investment Officer for Global Fixed Income at PIMCO. Hello, Andrew. Welcome to Money Talks. Thank you for having me. If inflation doesn't come down and sticks closer to 4% than the 2% target that most central banks had, what would the broad impact be on bonds as an asset class? If you were to have a shift to expectations of higher sustained inflation, then that would be very interesting, very disruptive. I mean, it was disruptive enough last year in 2022 with what is going on. But in terms of the bond market, if that were to happen, you would see a rise in terms of expectations for what central banks are going to do. So you would be pricing in higher policy rates for central banks. You may have widening of what you call inflation expectations or break-even inflation priced into bonds. You could have a repeat of what happened in 2022 in terms of negative returns for bonds, negative returns for equities. Now, a couple of things I think, and we at PIMCO more generally, we think it's pretty unlikely that you are going to have a significant shift in inflation expectations towards much higher levels. There's a number of reasons for this, but one of them, importantly, is we think that the central banks will be committed to getting inflation down towards their targets. I always think myself that central banks are in effect our inflation expectations targeted. So formally, they're inflation targeters, but they're inflation expectation targeters. And you can see this in terms of their behavior when you do see instability in terms of inflation expectations rising. You do see central banks react to that. So you could in the short term get stuck with sticky inflation at higher levels than the central bank targets. I think what would happen then is markets would price in higher terminal rates for central banks, more tightening, it would increase recession risk. And what might that mean for bond markets? In fixed income, this would potentially lead to the pattern of higher short-term yields, but uh, lower yields, further curve inversion. So lower yields further out the curve, it would be very difficult for risk assets for equity markets were you to price this additional significant hiking cycle for the the central bank. So it's not our baseline, but I'd say it's a very significant risk in the outlook that central banks will be forced to go a lot further. The idea that central banks will, in effect, accept significantly higher inflation compared with their targets, significant rise in inflation expectations, is certainly possible. I don't think it is very probable in the sense that, you know, the central banks have pretty clear objectives. Yes, there will be political pressures, but the central banks are independent. Okay, but if you do imagine the scenario in which inflation does remain at this elevated level and central banks decide for whatever reason that the economic cost of getting things back down to 2% is too high, what do you think the impact of that would be? So imagine a world where inflation expectations are anchored high and the central banks kind of don't respond. I think what happens is you have what we call higher break-even inflation rates. So when you look at interest rates, there is the real 
component and then the inflation component of yields. So what we're describing there is a case where you would have a rise in inflation expectations embedded in the yields. There's no particular reason why the real yield would rise in that event, but you could imagine a, a scenario where you have higher break-even inflation. And, you know, you have countries around the world, emerging markets with higher inflation, and that is the pattern. I think, though, what would happen, though, is the transition. If you're looking at what would happen in the short term is the markets would be pricing in more central bank tightening. I think the financial markets, when you look at the market-derived inflation expectations, that you know there is a lot of confidence in central banks getting to the targets. In terms of bond market returns, what really matters is what happens to the shape of the yield curve. I think it's likely that you would see further inversion of, of yield curves. So the market would price in more central bank tightening, deeper slowdowns, deeper recessions. Uh, you know, I think that's the most likely path. And can I ask about inflation-linked bonds and the extent to which they can protect investors from these kinds of dynamics? How are they working in practice as a hedge against inflation? So when you have inflation-linked bonds, you have the real interest rate and you have the nominal component, which we call break-even inflation. And over time, if you have shifts in terms of inflation, then inflation-linked debt can protect the real purchasing power of the instruments. And so if over the next few years there's a gradual rise in inflation expectations, having US tips or linkers in other markets can provide insurance against the higher inflation. Now, if you have very abrupt moves in terms of inflation, then what you have to remember is that TIPS, other inflation-linked bonds, they're, they're bonds. And you can have a rise in real yields, which dominates the inflation protection you have in the securities. So last year, in 2022, if you had inflation-linked bonds, you had negative returns as the real yield component of the bond repriced. If you'd had a one- or a two-year TIP, then that would have performed much better but if you had a 10-year bond, then the rise in the real yield can dominate. So the way we often use TIPS in our portfolios at PIMCO is you will have exposure to TIPS as a hedge to inflation as a medium-term trade, but you can't expect it to protect you against very sudden rises like we had last year. Andrew, thank you so much for joining the show. It's been a real pleasure to have you. Great to speak with you. Thanks. I'm back now with The Economist, Josh Roberts. Josh, thank you so much for sticking around. No worries. It's been really interesting listening along. So Andrew seems a little less convinced in the argument that central banks will go soft on us and let inflation persist at a higher level. What do you make of that case? So he's certainly right that central banks have clear targets and they've got the tools to hit them. By raising interest rates enough, they can always destroy enough demand to get inflation to 2% if they really want to. The problem is the impact this would have on the economy. So destroying lots of demand basically means pushing it into a recession. Take America. By one estimate, the unemployment rate would need to rise to 6.5% for the Fed to hit its 2% target. That translates to another 5 million people out of work. So sure, the Fed could do it. But is there the political will there to inflict that kind of pain? I don't think we can say that for certain. 
Got it. And both of our guests seem to think that if there is this shift higher in inflation expectations in financial markets, if everyone does come around to the case that maybe inflation will sort of remain higher for longer, that might cause more of the 2022 style disruption in financial markets that we've just recovered from. Is that what you expect as well? Well, yeah, I think that's the key point. So last year felt like a kind of long awaited reckoning for investors where this decade plus long bull market ended with a drawn out crash. But now things don't look anywhere near so bad. Stocks in particular have been motoring up for basically the last six months. If inflation expectations suddenly jump higher and you get all this repricing and disruption sweeping through markets, it is hard to see that optimism being sustained. And there are sort of loads of longer term consequences of a shift to higher inflation that we could get into. One that Ed pointed out was that higher rates could upset a lot of the trends in markets that we've seen over the past several decades, really. The US outperforming the rest of the world, tech stocks doing better than manufacturing, you know, all of those trends could in theory be sort of reversed or affected by this shift. But I'm curious what you think is the most interesting consequence of a shift to a higher inflation world. Well, for me as a sort of spectator to financial markets, the most interesting consequence is the opportunity for active fund managers. These are the people who earn their living picking stocks and asset classes and trying to beat the overall market. And they had an awful time in the 2010s because it seemed like every single asset class was going up together for more than a decade. And if everything's going up, that's great for investors. But it also means that it doesn't matter how good of a stock picker you are, you're going to struggle to beat the broader market. And that's what these guys get paid for. Things might look more uncertain and less bullish now, but that uncertainty and particularly the divergence between different assets ought to give those fund managers a chance to prove their mettle and earn their fees. So I'm personally just looking forward to seeing who comes out on top and who doesn't. Yes, I can see it's fun as a spectator, maybe not so fun if you're in the throes of it. But Josh, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Alice. So, Mike, Tom, what do you make of what you've heard today? It's always great to hear from Andrew Balls. I find it to be a sort of very lucid thinker. And we also work in the only industry where people instinctively refer to Ed Balls as Andrew Balls' brother rather than the other way around. Ed Balls, of course, being a former senior Labour Party politician in the UK, turned TV pundit, TV guy, something like that. Yeah, I also agree with Josh very much on the gaps between central bank tools and political reality and the sort of will to do everything that they can. You know, we've seen so many examples of that in recent years that I feel like it seems a little bit strange to say, you know, oh, they've got the tools, of course they'll do it. You look at the examples from, say, Japan or the European Central Bank working in the other direction. Japan has been in and out of deflation for large parts of the last 30 years. They've had this persistent inability to raise nominal growth. And they've constantly found additional tools to do it. It's not like they pulled out all the tools on day one. It took the ECB, I think, six and a bit years from the collapse of Lehman Brothers to the beginning of its QE program. So clearly people decide quite late on into long-running economic circumstances that they had additional tools that they didn't use in the first place. That seems to be relatively common. And absolutely, in this case, we're talking about tools that if employed to the full, they can cause recessions and throw people out of work. And of course, it becomes political. And of course, people don't want to see that happen if there's really any other choice. So I can definitely see that gap. 
In theory, monetary policy can do whatever it wants. You could raise interest rates to 100%. In the other direction, you could do helicopter drops, just giving people money, literal money printing. You could purchase any range of assets that you wanted. But in reality, these things often or almost always don't happen, and they certainly don't happen quickly. And if things get embedded over time, and you only see that sort of action much later on, it might not be anything like as effective. Yeah, I think the the question of what the longer term outlook for inflation will be feels very important and kind of unresolved. So there's one school of thought linked to our discussion a couple of weeks ago on demographics that the shift from an expanding workforce as a result of the baby boom, but also the addition of China's billion odd workers to the world economy to a contracting workforce will, will pivot the economy to a new era of greater inflationary pressure. And that's the argument that Charles Goodhart and Manoj Pradhan made in their book, The Great Demographic Reversal, a few years ago. And personally, I find that argument quite intuitive, but I know that we're still a long way off consensus among economists on this. So whether this is a short-term blip or something caused by kind of deep structural forces remains a big question mark, it seems. On this question of you know whether or not central banks have the metal, I'm sort of really gripped by this, even as just a sort of near-term question in the US. Because this year in America, the story was we were probably going to go into a recession pretty quickly, maybe in the first half, if not in the second half. And the American economy has just proven unbelievably resilient. It seems like they've thrown all of these interest rate increases at it. They moved very quickly. They broke things. They broke the banks. We obviously had a slew of bank failures in March. And yet still, if you sort of look at a lot of the macro stuff, whether that's jobs numbers or sort of most other indicators, things are slowing, but they really have not slowed anywhere nearly as quickly as I would have expected, given the increase in interest rates that we've seen over the past year or 18 months. And if inflation, therefore, doesn't come back down to 2%, but the economy is kind of fine, then why wouldn't central banks go further? In which case, I have more sympathy with the case that Andrew was making, that at least in that scenario in the US, they could keep going, because actually, there won't necessarily sort of a massive political trade-off from going even further. Things are still fine. That said, some of the sort of highest frequency, most recent data from the US is looking a little gloomier. So perhaps they have done enough to hurt the economy and we just haven't experienced it yet. The sort of curse of the central banker is that all of the things that they do act with long and variable lag. So sometimes you have no idea what devastation you've wrought until it's much too late. As Josh said, people who can... uh, analyze this, understand it, and put money to work in this environment are probably earning their fees. With that, shall we pivot to our stats of the week? I'll go first. My stat of the week is 1.4. And it's 1.4 nanometers to be specific. If you're having trouble visualizing that, it is because it is very, very, very small. (laughs) 1.4 nanometers is the size of the chips that Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company TSMC will be building from 2026, according to recent announcements, mass production more like 2027, 2028. These chips are getting very small. I'd say I'm looking forward to going to Taiwan and getting my hands on one. But honestly, I'm not sure if you can really get your hands on something that small. (laughs) I don't know if it's so much uh, getting your hands on one as being able to uh, see a chip that small. How small is 1.4 nanometers? How much smaller is it than the ones they currently make? 
So at the moment, I think they're just getting into the discussions with customers about two nanometers, which they're currently either making or, or very nearly making. This has gone down, obviously, to tiny, tiny, tiny sizes, but the competition seems to be endless to get it into ever, ever smaller levels. Well, from a very small number to a shockingly big number, my stat of the week is 700,000, which is the population of pet snakes in the UK, which absolutely blows my mind. I cannot for the life of me see the appeal of having a snake as a pet. I apologize to all of our Money Talks listeners who do have one, but it just seems like a shockingly big number. It's much smaller than the uh, the 12 million pet dogs in the country, but still seems very, very high to me. That's an enormous number. <laughs> That's an enormous number of snakes. Are we what saying here that something in the range of slightly more than one in a hundred people have... Are they telling people that they've got them? Or Because I, I don't know any. So someone's keeping it a secret in my circle. All right. My Shout of the Week this week has nothing to do with either of those. It's uh, something of a tribute. It is 4,016, which is the number of citations on the seminal paper published by Harry Markowitz called Portfolio Selection. He published this in 1952. It was actually his dissertation when he published it. And it was one of those seminal papers in investing that really completely changed how everyone thought about finance. At the time, people thought you should just invest in whichever companies were best, offered the best prospects. And he realised that that didn't account for risk. And so he sort of invented this concept of maximising risk-adjusted returns and using diversification assets to achieve that. And basically, all modern academic finance, the invention of the index fund, everything sort of flows from that brilliant insight that he had when he was in his 20s. And he passed away on uh, June 22nd. So I wanted to give him a shout out here because that was one of the papers that when I learned about it in economics, I was totally gripped by and made me really want to become a finance buff. So uh, to Harry Markowitz. And that brings us to the end of our episode. All that's left to do now is thank Ed Cole and Andrew Balls. And thank you for listening to Money Talks. Don't forget to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And you can always write to us at podcasteconomist.com. Today's show was produced by Dan Asher. Our sound engineer is Ting Lee Lim. And the executive producer is Marguerite Howell. I'm Alice Fullwood. I'm Tom Lee Devlin. I'm Mike Bird. And this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.